0: Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. First brand you remember having an impact on
1: you. A Toyota Corolla. My first car. 1976 model.
0: And it was a liberating time for you to Liberating it? It was You a, were living where?
1: I was still in Manila. It was obviously a, a rite of passage, my first taste of independence. Uh, I was able to drive the car. Uh, I had my first girlfriend at the time. Uh, and, you know, you felt like a grown-up. Um, I was probably 17, 18. Do
0: you still drive a Toyota? N- no. No? Okay. <laughs> all, right, all
1: right.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today on the CMO Podcast, we have Dean Aragon who's the global CMO of Shell, which, by the way, is a $340 billion company the size of like five Procter Gamble's. But this is perhaps the most poignant podcast I've recorded yet. And by the way, we're recording still in Cannes, France, at the Festival of Creativity. And Dean and I got together and he talked about his family and the deep motivation he gets for his work from his wife, who he loves so dearly, and his five children. And he also talked about, when he was young, how the Shell service station in his neighborhood in Manila is where he went to meet friends and to have a cold drink and have a snack and how the early imprint of Shell and the positive imprint of Shell is still with him. Here's my conversation with Dean But I want to step back a little bit so our audience can get to know you a bit better as I do. So I have a little, some quick questions for you to start Please. the interview. So... What's the city you were born in? Manila. The moment you knew you wanted to work in marketing.
1: I originally wanted to be an economist.
0: So you studied? I I studied management
1: economics uh, uh, which in in a university which I would say is one of the best in the Philippines, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the Ateneo de Manila. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then when the Procter & Gamble and Unilever folk came to our sort of career week and they explained what brand management was about, and, you know, I've always been, shall we say, playing with a lot of performance arts. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm, I'm a standard Filipino. I, I believe I can sing. <laughs> whether, whether, whether the reality matches my, my imagination, my imagination about my skills is another thing. But you thing. do sing. But I do sing, and I, I, and I loved. I, I acted in, 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 mm-hmm. in, in some place. And I said, hey, this is a great way to combine, you know, commerciality, corporate stuff, bit of entertainment, and a lot of engaging, you know, uh, audiences and consumers and developing new products. And, and then, then the magic thing that they said was, actually, we don't care what you studied. And, and they presented people who were brand managers, were marine biologists, aerospace engineers, economists, mm-hmm. marketing graduates, music graduates. And I said, I think this is actually
0: what I would love to do. I had a very similar experience in choosing to go into brand management, very similar. It's kind of where creativity meets business. Absolutely. It all comes together.
1: It's that golden intersection of my left and right brain. Yeah, yeah.
0: So back then you, had, you were impressed with Unilever and P&G. Yes. So who did you choose?
1: Well, the funny thing is I actually interviewed for both. This was in the Philippines, and I, and I went to the final rounds, but none of them chose me. Oh, I was chosen by Nestle as a management trainee. Uh, the story will become more complicated, but I eventually decided to leave as well Nestle very quickly. There was just, I think, half a year. There was a, there was a major sort of a labor dispute at that time. And then I ended up asking myself, well, what's the one thing that I really seem to love about this world? And I said, oh, I really love this world of advertising, you know, this branded communications. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, why not join an agency? Mm-hmm. So then I applied with a number of agencies. Uh, there was a proctor agency, was Sachi and Sachi at the right. time. There was also the Unilever agency, which was JWT. And uh, it's just that the JWT lady who was hiring me was, uh, was a legend in the industry. She was, I think, probably the first lady account manager. Her, mm-hmm. her name is Nanette, Nanette Dico. Mm-hmm. And she's, now, she's still a columnist and a professor of advertising in, in the Philippines. And she said, if you join me, I'll make sure your career Goes really, really high very fast, and I said, "It's a good oh, promise." I'm am a fresh grad. Okay, I'm convinced. You know, I'll go. And of course, the strange thing is, as you know, uh, 15 years later, Unilever hired me, and I said to them, "You could have had me cheaper, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> fresh off the fresh of school." Yeah.
0: So we'll get into that later. Unilever sure. hiring you. So I want to continue to get to know you a bit better. Who's your most admired? It's a tough question for you. Your most admired CMO in the world today.
1: You know, I admire what Google has done. Mm-hmm. So I think the work Lorraine. that Lorraine yep. has done, and I, I had the pleasure of meeting her uh, in San Francisco at Marketing Live. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think for a data tech company to really come across in a very savvy, humanized way, that's beyond creativity. That, that shows- they were named
0: marketer of the year here last year. Absolutely. And I think well-deserved. Yeah, Absolutely. So best agency you ever worked with.:
1: Oh, I told you this interview would be easy.: I think <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end up disappointing <laughs> others. I, I, I want to say that I have a lot of respect for the classic JWT. They have had their lapses in terms of, uh, you know, creative power, but I never question the sharpness of their brand strategy thinking. I think they are classically trained brand strategists. Mm-hmm. And in an age where people get infatuated with tech, infatuated with data analytics, they still understand the fundamentals. And, and that's why I think you know, the work that uh, like people like Guy Murphy does at JWT in strategic planning and the planner that's, uh, that's really my, my partner is Olivia Johnson, who I also met uh, when, when, when I was part of the Global Dove team. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for what they do, and 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 I also have a lot, even more respect for the fact that they, they really keep me honest. You know, they challenge me when they have to, and and that's what partnership yeah. is all about.
0: Yeah, we don't see that enough, do we?
1: No, and uh, and I think it's uh, whenever I speak to some fellow clients and they constantly complain about their agencies, I always. Ask a very cheeky question and said, "Oh, so you mean the ad that you're complaining about was aired by the agency without your approval?" <laughs> yeah, and 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 of course they go, "No, of course I approved it." So,
0: it's a partnership, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. yeah. So, what's one thing about Dean that is not online?
1: Oh, um, the age of three, I was, uh, I had polio, mm. and uh, they don't know how I contracted it, but. My left leg was completely paralyzed, and I was—I oh was—I had braces. I was walking with a limp. I remember my mom was was, was really really uh, dejected, and and she couldn't understand what happened. Um, and at that time, this was 1970 in the Philippines, and mm-hmm. uh, they thought, oh, it's because you were swimming in a swimming pool where other people were, and yeah, it was probably full of bacteria and viruses, and. But anyway, I was subjected to some experimental uh, electru- electrocution-based uh, treatment. And for some reason, it worked. And I remember vividly an image where the doctor was using this, I don't know what you call that, like, like, like rubberized hammer that doctors yeah, have. Right. And For reflexes. And, and, when, yeah. and when, he, when he struck my knee, I remember that I kicked up and everybody in the room started crying. Oh. <laughs> so I have a very vivid image of that. I don't think I'm romanticizing that memory because it's, it's always been in my brain. It's a very strong implant. And, uh, and I, to this very day, I'm very blessed that, uh, that it somehow worked. And the strange thing is, I, I did a lot of football and I did a lot of taekwondo. And mm-hmm. if I'm right handed, I'm left footed, if that makes sense. Interesting. So that's a bit of a paradox that that's the leg that I actually am more comfortable
0: And that's the leg you had trouble with. with. And you're more comfortable with. That's,
1: that's the leg that was uh, where polio struck.
0: Wow! So I
1: don't put that in my CV. Yeah, uh, maybe I should.
0: No, it's. Thank you for sharing it. You work now for Shell, the fifth largest company in the world. I mean, something like 390 billion in revenue. I mean, that's like five Procter and Gamble's. (laughs) I mean, do you think about that much? The scale of what you're doing, and does it kind of blow your mind? I mean, it's. It's, Or you don't think about it much.
1: No, I do, uh, because I. Thought about it a lot when I said yes. Mm-hmm. I uh, it, it wasn't very difficult for me to say yes, and a lot of it is also because of how I grew up in the Philippines and interacting with the brand. Um, you remember that Toyota Corolla I mentioned? Yeah. So I there was a Shell station not too far from my house, and that was the hangout place for teenagers. And you know, there was, you know, some sort of Slurpee and some hot dogs, and you know, you kind of brought. The people you liked there and sort of uh, sure. and, and and you know had socialization, not, nothing nothing rowdy. Uh, it was a basketball team, and mm-hmm. you know the Filipinos are obsessed with basketball because of you guys, yep. you know you colonized us, <laughs> and even if we're vertically challenged, uh, you know we we are obsessed about basketball, and to this day we're still dreaming of really penetrating the nBA. It was a patron of the arts, and uh, one of my uh, godfathers is a national artist, he's already passed, but I remember that he was telling me in his early days he was, uh, he was sponsored by Shell, or he won a, some of the Shell Arts competition. That persisted for many years. So when I was invited to, uh, to join Shell, it was an easy decision because of that, but also because I had So at that kids. time, you were working for- I was working for Unilever.
0: And your responsibility was? Uh,
1: I was working on the hair care Group Hair care,
0: large business for Unilever. So and you had been at Unilever how many years?
1: At the time, formally,
0: 15 years. 15 years at Unilever. Yeah. And years in the advertising business. And you jumped to Shell. So tell me why and what was that decision like and how easy was that to make?
1: I, I have five children. And, um, and I've done a lot of consumer categories. And when I think about my children and I think about you know, um, the world we live in and the energy system that I know uh, is required, you know, to enable progress. I said to myself, how do I become part of the solution or the solutions? Mm-hmm. Because there are there are quite a few. Uh, so that at least, you know, in my own small way, I'm contributing to ensuring that the world that my children's generation will inherit would, will be at least as good, if not better, smarter. Mm-hmm. And uh, And I wanted to use my marketing brains to to see you know, how can I help the leadership of Shell uh, really recognize you know, how to also, not only do what they have to do, but also to engage its stakeholders, its customers, that this is a journey that you know, we all need to go through together, that you can unleash these ideas and innovations by collaborating with a number of sectors. And, um, and thankfully they agreed that uh, I, I could be of value and, uh, and um, we did a handshake.
0: That was how many years ago?
1: That was almost exactly five years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's what I
0: thought. So you have a very impressive job title. I just want to read it. CEO, Shell Brands International, and Vice President of Brand, Global Brand. So I want you to tell me about your job. Yes. What does that mean? What work do you do? If you had to put it into buckets, what are the
1: big pieces of work? The good thing is Shell is, as you say, is, is a large enterprise. But it also is, is fortunate to have one unifying brand. There are sub-brands, mm-hmm. but they're all Shell derivatives. and when I ever I introduce myself in Shell or even outside Shell, I just say, look, I'm the brand guy. <laughs> yeah. and I'm the brand guy of Shell. And I look after the, the master brand, the corporate brand, however you put it. And I, I'm not in charge of product marketing, but because the products are almost entirely branded Shell, with a few exceptions, then the ethos, the equity, the cachet of the brand needs to really both build and borrow from the products, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm responsible for, which is you know, how do you plot the future of this brand? How do you constantly enrich it? Uh, and there's always a nod to the past. I'm privileged that the brand is still a respected brand because of the work of you know, giants on whose shoulders I stand. You know? and, uh, and, and, I, and I'm able to build, which is essentially an over a hundred year old brand, uh, further. And, and make it relevant for you know, not only today, but for the future.
0: So how do you approach that? I mean-
1: well, in my first 18 months, I had to, I had to really work on, on, on the brand purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so why know. did you make that
0: a priority, the brand purpose? Because
1: to me, that's the foundation. If, if, you, if you are able to really be clear about what the company seeks to be about, that's the North Star. And that's what will really guide you know, your choices, your content, and your conduct. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very powerful. And from there, inductively, you can then determine, well, what do we do next? You know? So uh, what should, how did, should, should that shape our portfolio? How should that shape the way we engage with stakeholders, customers, and everybody else that we have to work with? And that's why I like that sort of, that, that sort of di- that trifecta of, you know, if it's not materially impacting the choices, content and the conduct of the business, then you know all of these purpose statements that you see are basically sloganeering.
0: That's about as good a definition of brand purpose as I've heard. And there's a lot of confusion around brand purpose. People think it's something on to, to the side. I'll run the business and I'll do the purpose. But that's a beautiful definition. Where did you get your conviction in that? Was it at Unilever through experience there or is it something deeper?
1: I think it's deeper. I think it's it's because of how I lived uh, and how I grew up in the Philippines. I, and the people that I admired the most were always the people who were able to be uh, agents and leaders of change, uh, positive change. You know, the Philippines uh, uh, sort of lost its way in the 1970s. Uh, and I think, you know, we were still classified as a developing nation. But I knew that there was so much talent in the Philippines, uh, and and therefore, I really admired those leaders who were, as I said, you know they were they were really uh, stimulating a different way of thinking, so that people and especially from the grassroots were were developing themselves to their fullest potential. I mean, I I'm fully educated in the Philippines, and in in the beginning, I had sort of this. Um, this colonial mindset, or colonized mindset, shall we say, that you know, can I make it outside? You know, can I? Am I? Am I good enough? Uh, or the famous Mike Myers quote? You know, will the no the no talent police catch me one day? Yeah. And the
0: imposter syndrome, right? The imposter syndrome, yeah. which
1: is, I think, in in parts, healthy. Yeah. yeah. I I eventually decided. Well, you know what? You'll never know unless you try. Mm-hmm. So the moment I had the opportunity to do something that would take me to other markets or have more markets to be responsible for, I grabbed it. And I said, look, the only way to know whether you can, you're really good enough is to try. And, and thankfully, uh, it's, it's, it's really paid off well. So what was your
0: first assignment outside the Philippines?
1: Maybe the first assignment where I was responsible for more than the Philippines mm-hmm. was when Unilever made me in charge of the Innovation Center for deodorants mm-hmm. for Asia. And at the time, it was uh, based in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I was working in Manila. You know, sometimes they say you never know where a moment can mean more than the moment. Yeah. I, I was going to a, a, a low-income consumer forum of Unilever in Mexico City, you mm-hmm. know, the of Federal at that time. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was working on a low-income uh, strategy for deodorants in the Philippines, which was, um, the way I phrased it was, it's like inv- being invited to the same banquet and partaking of the same food offering, but being given smaller plates so that the cash outlay required, particularly if you're a daily or a weekly wager, Mm -hmm. uh, was not sort of uh, forcing you to buy or commit too much cash because you have to divide your cash into so many things, Mm -hmm. especially food. Mm -hmm. So I gave this presentation and then little did I know that uh, there was a very senior leader listening to what I was presenting. and. Uh, and 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 they asked me later on, how would you like to try out all of your ideas, but on the Asian stage? <laughs> wow. And I said, but I'm, I said I can't move to Sydney because you know I've got commitments. Well, no, well, why don't we base this innovation center in Manila? And that's what happened. And wow. that of course had other benefits. It created an ecosystem of of value chains across the Philippines. You know, we we. We had toll manufacturers. We had we hired more marketeers. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, we had more opportunities. Yeah. and uh, and you know, and then of course across Asia, the you know the penetration potential of of, of that category. So that was really the break I had. Mm-hmm. And, but that all was triggered by one presentation in and, one and international nick taking a and one an leader initiative. taking a chance.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he didn't know me on you and on the location
1: on me on the location. Uh, so I'm very thankful to this very day for that.
0: That's a great story. So I want to get you back on brand purpose, which you so beautifully described. So you're um, activating brand purpose on a very important brand now in the world. So what, you know, many brands stumble when they get to activation. How do you bring it to life? And how do you measure it? So what have you learned that could help others about how you've been able to activate the purpose? And how do you measure it?
1: The first thing is by not talking about the purpose. Because sometimes I see some marketeers or some companies uh, like to talk more about their purpose rather than what are they actually doing Mm -hmm. because of the purpose. Mm -hmm. So I actually had a very deliberate mindset that we're not going to talk about the purpose. Rather, I want us to really, again, materially impact the choices, content and conduct of the business, Mm -hmm. and then years thereafter, talk about the purpose retroactively rather than prospectively, if that Act makes first. sense. Yeah, it right? sure does. Because then that's a, that's a more tangible way. So there's an old insult in advertising, which I think still makes sense. I'm sure I'll remember it. Which is, uh, your briefs are showing. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. right. It's a bit like the yeah. same thing about when you see some brands seemingly marketing and advertising the insight rather than the response to the insight. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I think that's the really, it sounds so basic, but, but actually, some people get confused by this, you know, to your earlier point. Then, of course, it's about, you know, how do you then make sure that the rest of the enterprise really understands what the purpose means for the business? Because the other confusion is that it should spark altruism. And, right. and again, I have another catchphrase, which yeah. is this has to be about how we make money. How you make money. How you not make business, about how yeah. we spend right. money. Right. Because... The only repeatable model I know right now is when the commercial success of your enterprise is nurtured by the good that you do. Then that becomes repeatable mm-hmm. because you're actually incentivized to keep doing it. And again, that sounds so basic, yeah. but
0: there's confusion around there's that. Confusion yeah. around that. Yeah.
1: And that's why sometimes I say I don't like the phrase, you know, something about the pursuit of something beyond the pursuit of profit. I'd rather say, why can't you profit from the pursuit of purpose? Mm-hmm. Right,
0: right. Which Indra Nui at Pepsi said 12 years ago, and they've had a pretty good run.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think and I think that if more companies do that, then we can all be valuable, and because we're creating shared value. Yeah, that's right. right.
0: So, how do you measure your progress on performance? You talked about acting first. Yes. And showing it through your behaviors, your conduct.
1: There are a number of uh, uh, performance indicators, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm looking for you know some some really really uh, fundamental uh, metrics of outcomes, mm-hmm. and, and 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 there are, there are several. I, I measure certain. I don't want to talk too too technical about you know some of our brand metrics, but I I, I do measure certain attributes mm-hmm. that form the equity of the brand, and and if I and I'm trying to make sure that it continues to build. Yeah. But I also measure certain things like uh, trust. Mm-hmm. Trust is uh, yeah. it's hard to earn, and and we track that consistently mm-hmm. to make sure that we're that we constantly earn that, and and that's why it ties back neatly to the point about it's about how you bring your purpose to life convincingly, repeatedly, that then earns you that trust. Mm-hmm.
0: So Shell is one of the quintessential global brands, right? Your your brand is in how many countries? Probably wow. hundred and
1: over 100, uh, 40, and, and, 50, even, and even more if you talk about, depends on how you define yeah. where we- you're at. So it's, it's present in many more countries Be- almost beyond everywhere. where we have operations. Yeah,
0: yeah, almost everywhere. So how do you manage that brand in so many different places and touch points? How do you manage the differences in local cultures to the global direction of the brand? It's an age-old issue, many, yeah. and we still struggle with it. But how do you manage that balance between setting a global purpose direction for your brand, and managing to make it relevant and appealing and interesting to so many cultures.
1: There is no other way other than to make sure that every unit within Shell equally embraces that purpose and makes it personal, makes it part of their success strategy, because you can't really provide templates or cookie cutters. Uh, So that's why the first thing I say is they first they have to get it, then they have to actually love it. Mm And if they do that, then they will live it. Yeah. And that's why I've been working very closely with a number of units across Shell to make sure that they are, they're really going through that journey of I get it, I love it, I live yeah. it. And embed it in their strategies, in their plans, in the way they populate the funnel of growth initiatives. It needs to be filtered primarily by our sense of purpose.
0: And then once they do that, once they get it and they love it and they're living it, you give them freedom to execute.
1: Well, it's not even freedom that for me to give, you know, they have the they have the autonomy, they have the, and the responsibility, yeah. especially the P&L to to make sure that that is the success strategy. Mm-hmm. And the good news is that it wasn't a hard sell. I was really pushing not only an open door, but you know, it was it was something that and and you know, we're not surprised, right? You know, mm-hmm. In, in this industry, we're not surprised that when you give people meaning to what they're doing, that's the best way to engage them. You know, you know, it's been said by many, many experts, but you know, the left brain may conclude, you know, Shell is a very technical company full of engineers and economists and mathematicians, but the right brain decides. Mm-hmm. I don't know who, who coined that phrase, but I'm a big believer in it and because I've seen it work. Yeah.
0: There's a famous English neuroscientist who I think first said that.
1: I often get confronted sometimes when people say, well, don't you realize that you know, some of these things are commodities? And I said, well, it's a commodity if you, do, if you see it that way. But you know, as a marketeer, I, n- I never see anything as a commodity. And then my counter question is, do you want to be preferred? Mm-hmm. Like, do you want your business, your offering to be preferred? Do you want our brand to be preferred? The answer, of course, is always yes. And then my next response to that is, well, it's intellectually impossible to be preferred if you're not differentiated. I can't tell the person right. that I love the most in my life, which is my wife, say, "Well, honey, you know I love you, but frankly, you're just the same as everybody else." <laughs> you know, it doesn't work, right? No. It doesn't compute. I love my wife because I know that to me, she's the best person in the world who will be my life part, my my life partner, mm-hmm. uh, together with our five children. And to me, she has her own set of differentiating qualities that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm I'm obviously. Hoping that she sees the same. <laughs> well, it sounds in like she me, does. Yeah. Right? yeah, we've been together for 29 years, so uh, something's working.
0: I've been together 36, so congratulations to you. I have you to look up to. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> and follow. So when when you get back to this um, differentiation, right? You work in um, in energy. So without getting too specific, sure. because you know, what are the drivers, a uh, preference of differentiation? What could others learn by how you've done that? Because you've had a pretty good run at it.
1: If you look at our Make the Future campaign or hashtag mm-hmm. Make the Future, right. um, all we've done is to make the topic of energy more engaging and, and, and really make it you know, simpler things to digest because I, I think most people don't really wake up each morning thinking, you know, what's, <laughs> where is the energy coming from? Yeah, uh, right. or, uh, this thing that I have to charge, you know, this gadget, or, or you know, uh, what fuel I'll put in my vehicle. If if I have a vehicle, mm-hmm. and, you know we've just tried to present it to them in both educational and entertaining ways. You know we've done music videos, and even in the music videos, some people say, "Oh, that's new! I've never seen an energy company do music videos." And I was going, "Well, actually, I happened to review the archives of Shell in my first three weeks, and back in the '50s, you know, we had Bing Crosby, <laughs> right. yeah, we had Samuel Lee yeah, Davis Jr., yeah. Uh, yeah, we had Frank, you know, we had we had uh, Dean Martin." And I said, you know, I just updated it for the modern time. And our current campaign is a great travel hack. And there, yeah, it's, about, it's, it's, fun. A, you know, it's about it's fun. You yeah. know, the journey from LA to New York, but it's not a race. It's about who can get there through a variety of vehicles and have the least CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. It's just educational, but in a way that is welcome because it's entertaining. Right. And of course, we're yeah. thankful that Kaylee Cuoco uh, agreed to be our game master. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's fun. It's really fun. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, Visit cmo.deloitte.com. So, you spent 15 years at Unilever before coming to Shell. You know, that's a very famous CPG company. I worked at a very famous CPG company. Uh, how did that experience help you at Shell? What was it pivotal about the Unilever experience that made you a, the leader you are? It
1: was quite poetic, actually, because uh, it's, a, it's almost like a 10 minute walk crossing the, the River Thames in London. So, so I, so I walk. I remember the final day in office. So you're based
0: in London now. Uh,
1: well, no, this is when I first Okay, worked. when you made the decision. So, okay. I, yeah. so my, my entry point of employment was the, the Shell Center in London, which is literally across, it was on the South Bank of the River Thames and Blackfriars is in the North Bank. And it's a literally a 10 minute walk, you know, you cross Blackfriars Bridge from the Unilever headquarters, Unilever House to mm-hmm. the Shell Center, which is right in front of the London Eye. And in, in crossing that river, the realization hit me quickly that you're leaving a world where a bunch of marketing and brand savvy folk, where the name of the game was, is your idea better than mine? And in Shell, with all humility, I think that the name of the game isn't so much that, but why do we need you? It's a game of relevance. And you know what, what new thinking can you bring to the table that can really help? And that was a very humbling realization, because you know it's not as if I can just say, "Well, you know, I did this in shampoo or I did this in theodorants. Yeah. you know, and I knew nothing about the sector other than what everybody else can read about. And I knew it wasn't about my experience in hair oils. <laughs> so but I also knew that they wanted to see what can what could be useful insights and practices and and you know and and new thinking that in, from the world of CPG or B2C, to a world where we do have some B2C, but it's still you know, predominantly B2B mm-hmm. businesses. And that's where I came up with the phrase of B2H, said it doesn't matter where it's B2B, B2C. 2 B2 humans. It's always B2H, yeah. it's always business to humans. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, I was reassuring my B2B friends at Shell that um, you know, in CPG days, or even our B2C businesses, you don't really know enough customers to make up a significant part of your business. That's why you rely on market research. Mm-hmm. But in B2B, you know, 80% of your business is down to customers that you can physically, mathematically, spend a lot of time with. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the humanization of the brand becomes more real. Because it's a, it's a much more intimate yeah. relationship versus, let's say, just uh, mass marketing of CPG products. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? No, it totally, ma-
0: totally makes sense. Often I hear, you know, marketing is not as important in B2B. And I said, you know, yes, it is. You're still still trying to understand people and build a product and service to delight them. So tell me, you came in from Unilever and you hit that switch and it was about relevance. How did you build credibility? How did you start up? How did you balance the tough tension between leading and doing something and wanting to get into the business and results and listening and learning? What could others learn from your...
1: I I of course have to give credit to the Shell leadership, uh, particularly the executive committee uh, for giving me the space. Um, I I remember my first few meetings, um, they must have thought, you know, where did we hire this strange creature from? (laughs) Uh, I think the best answer to the question is I've always retained my personal brand. I've always been the same Filipino boy who grew up in the streets of Manila. Uh, I've always maintained the same tactic of, you know, whenever I'm confronted with something new or complex, I try to explain it to to the 12-year-old version of myself. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that, I have completely decomposed the new thing or the problem. And I guess I was just a straight talker. And and Mm -hmm. I didn't come up with fancy marketing stuff. I just said, look, forget marketing. Let's talk about our customers. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn how we can understand them better, so that we can really delight them, if you want to call that marketing, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. If you want our brand to grow in, in, in value, in connect, in the depths of connection, uh, you can call it anything. Uh, but those are the two things that I, I really wanted them to understand and and, and sometimes it needed it, it required changing things. But I don't want to change things unnecessarily. You know you know the old right. marketing, the new yeah. brand manager syndrome where yep. You They're, know, I got to launch something new, and that's what happens with SKU proliferation, right? Yeah, yeah. got to make in my in, mark quickly. In our, in our old days, yeah,
0: that's right, that's right. So, what's the biggest difference in marketing Unilever versus Shell as a as a discipline?
1: Well, I think the marketing profession in in in, in Unilever is obviously far more developed, right? Because it's a it's a it's a it's a CPG company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 a house of brands, right? That's a big where, difference. Whereas Shell is a branded house. Yeah, I'd like to think that. The proctors in Unilever's world probably would would not mind having such a powerful brand that unites the whole company, sure. right? And it's more efficient that way in in many ways. I think the second difference is because it's not a fundamentally marketing orientated company as CPG companies are. It's also more humble mm-hmm. in the areas of marketing. It doesn't pretend to know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pretend that you know we've got we've got our game sorted. So we we hardly talk a big game. In, in the areas of marketing and mm-hmm. brands.
0: So what do you love most about your role? You're five years into it, five and a half years into it. What do you love most? And and the, on the other side of that, what, you know, it sounds like nothing drives you crazy, but what what would you like to change? I, what do you love I, about it? What would you like to change about I,
1: it? I love, you, you talked about the size of the company. I like the fact that I'm exposed to the entire breadth of the value chain. Yeah. Whereas, you know, again, when you grow up in a CPG company, unless you become like Jim Stangle, right? uh, you, you really are pretty much uh, locked into a particular category or division. Right. And, you know, like Unilever, yeah, I knew the foods guys, but frankly, I never really had to interact mm-hmm. with them. Whereas in Shell, uh, I'm, I'm interacting across the entire company, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both the businesses themselves, the functions. Uh, uh, and and that's, that's really rich, and, 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 and I've learned so much in the last five years that uh, without disrespecting anyone, I, I'd say I, I wish I came earlier. Yeah, I know the feeling. You know, yeah. like I wish I did this earlier. I wish I took a risk earlier and, and ventured out there.
0: How are you a better leader now than you were when you came in?
1: I'm now really allowing myself to, to rely more on others and their superpowers. Um, I was a oh, as a kid. I was a big comic book collector, and, and you that, should have kept
0: them. And, uh, I should, well, I still do, but <laughs> they're not. In, but they're not in mint because okay? okay. I actually yeah. read them. You read them, yeah,
1: yeah, it's repeatedly. And and I I like to talk about my X Men approach to thinking uh, of mm-hmm. teams uh, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. building teams where I I I select people of very diverse superpowers, and and I like to make sure that we operate in different ways, but by assembling together so that. Whatever the brief, whatever the challenge, I can combine and, and and in a way curate these superpowers to attack those briefs more effectively. And so I like the sense of completing abilities versus hiring people with similar profiles, and you end up with unhealthy competition because, frankly, each one is saying, "Well, I can do that better than you." Right. But this notion of completing abilities also has the undeniable benefit of. Promoting interdependence. I need you mm. to win. Right. You need me to win. How can we help each other succeed?
0: Mm-hmm. And you feel like you've gotten even more deeply schooled in that in your last five and a half I, years. I
1: believe so. I believe yeah. that, because it came at the same time as having to learn a whole new business, mm-hmm. a whole new culture. You your cup, right? A whole new company. Uh, Some people say, you know, minimize the variables of change. Well, I did (laughs) maximum variables of change. You know, some people are saying, "Are you crazy? New company, new sector, new team, new location, new country." Uh,
0: So you moved from London to
1: eventually. I so I was I first entered Shelter the London office, but eventually uh, I had to move to 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 Switzerland, Switzerland, yeah, and move the family as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, at least those who are not going to university Mm -hmm. yet. uh, So now my family lives in three countries, because I, I have my younger teenagers in Zurich with me, I have, I have my, some of my adult kids in London for university, and I have a son in Boston. Wow. Well, let's talk about that.
0: You know, I, I also moved to many countries during my career at P&G and took my family with me. How do you think your family is different by the experience? By living in different cities, moving around the world, adjusting?
1: The one... Difference. Uh, we can debate whether that's a benefit or not. So I actually believe that my f- my family, the seven of us, have become more nuclear. It helps, of course, that you know we're, we we have scale. Yeah. So I remember when we were living in Tokyo, where many people don't have a lot of kids. They always joke that oh, when the Aragon kids arrive, the party can start because <laughs> there's you enough, bring the party. There's enough people, you know. There's you know the birthday parties yeah. when yeah. they were when they were quite small. I think that's, that's one benefit where nuclear, of course it comes with also some trade-offs, like unlike their cousins who are all growing up together back in the Philippines, mm-hmm. sure. you know, the distance is, you know, yeah. It, it, we, we don't have the usual family support systems that, yeah. that at least I grew up with. Yeah.
0: When I first left uh, the U.S. with P&G in my first international assignment, uh, a very wise person at HR said to me, two things happen to families when we send them abroad. They either become way tighter, more nuclear, or they start to fray. And here are some tips to be the former. And I, I think, same as you, I think our family just became but I made some super mis- tight.
1: But I made some mistakes, which I'm happy to to own up, uh, because uh, I learned from them, and eventually I reconciled with some of my older kids, because you know there's no handbook really on fatherhood, and and especially mm-hmm. there's no handbook on fatherhood where your kids grow up as third culture kids. Right. So I was still applying Filipino parenting beliefs and methods on children who did not grow up in that environment and imposing it on them and and it didn't reconcile with the world they were living in right right and, and my eldest daughter and she's gonna be embarrassed by this uh, nina uh she and i had a falling out in when she was like 14 15 but then i realized oh my god you know it's like i, I understand that her responses are not exactly what i would agree with but i i'm the cause of this because i'm I'm imposing, mm-hmm. as I said, this sort of one culture on a different culture mm-hmm. and ignoring the realities that they were living through. Mm-hmm. And plus the struggles of being a teenager, sure. right? Uh, so when, when she turned 17, by then, I, you know, we had already worked our differences. And I remember that I was celebrating my birthday at the time. And, and she posted on Facebook, hey, happy birthday, Pops. Thanks for being my friend again. Oh, and I, yeah, I was. You had I, I, you I, had I, damp I, eyes. I, I, well, more than that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm. I cry easily, and yeah. and I was like, I was really a, a wellspring of, of 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 tears. And uh, and you know that was a turning point. Now, my, not only are we friends again, I I think we're best friends. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and and she and I like hanging out uh together, and uh, she looks forward to uh you know when I visit London, and you know we. Mm-hmm.
0: This has been really very special. I don't want to end this with a bit of a lightning round to uh, to close out a fantastic. Thank chat. you very I much. I wish we for could keep privilege. going, actually. So, what's a brand you cannot live without?
1: I love the camera of my Huawei P20 Pro, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I in fact love the fact that uh, I posted the, some pictures, and my friends from Google said, "Oh, you must have taken." The camera <laughs> the, the, the picture with the pixel 3 and i said sorry to disappoint you but it's a huawei p20 pro <laughs> that's great and it's an asian brand yeah yeah for
0: sure you know, so a, what's your go-to food and drink
1: i love filipino food yeah. i love anything asian yeah so when i'm in london with my with my two daughters uh a standard go-to place is soho <laughs> yeah. and uh yeah. rich variety of Asian food. And yeah. uh, and uh, I just love the the edge of the flavors and the spices. Yeah,
0: I do too. Absolutely. So a book you're reading right now that's important for you or one you've read recently?
1: Well, I'm going to read uh, the book by Steven Pinker. Yeah. Uh, I just heard him speak in, at the stream event mm-hmm. that WPP mm-hmm. hosts. And I, I think, you know, the two things I remember the most is that, you know, progress is not inevitable. We all have to work on it. Mm-hmm. But you also shouldn't you know, unknowingly uh, keep on remembering the good old days because it's actually getting better. And you also need to acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We don't do that
1: enough. We don't do that enough. And I think the notion of thankfulness Mm -hmm. uh, is is always important. I'm a person of faith, and I believe that we could all use a little bit more thankfulness so Mm -hmm. that I'm always reminded, you know, uh, happiness is not really getting what you want, but appreciating what you get. Yeah. Beautiful
0: series you're watching now. Anything?
1: I I I love you know the marvelous Miss Maisel.
0: Yeah, so do I. If you I, like show business, you would. Like I that. love
1: the movie Always Be My Maybe by Ali Wong and Randall Park. Hmm. Yeah, it's a again because you know it's an Asian. Oh, I haven't seen that. Uh, I have to romantic watch that. comedy. Yeah. There's a. I don't want to be do, do a spoiler, but the trailer anyway shows it's great it. There's title. a there's a huge cameo by Keanu Reeves, uh, yeah. and, and you know I mean yeah. All right.
0: So your biggest passion in the world?
1: My family. I live for them. And I, I actually believe I am living because of them. I was telling my wife, uh, you know, if we didn't have as many kids, maybe we'll, we 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 can afford more things. And she goes, no. Well, I said, why? Because I don't think you would have pushed yourself. You know, and, and I think she's right. I think that was a very, very insightful thing to say. I think that, um, you always want a better future for your children especially better than what you yourself went through and in the last five years i've also pivoted my aspiration for them i just i don't have any career or material aspirations for them i I obviously don't want them to suffer but i want them to be happy Mm -hmm. and if their happiness comes from something that i don't know of if it truly makes them happy i mean true happiness Mm -hmm. right something that Mm -hmm. it's not extrinsic, but intrinsic happiness, then I will be their biggest supporter.
0: That's a beautiful thought to end on. Thank Dean, you, sir. this was a uh, very, very sweet interview. Oh, thank you I very much. I enjoyed it and I feel uh, touched by it and I thank
1: you for spending the time with well, us. Well, thanks for indulging me in my thoughts and experiences and insights.
0: That was my conversation with Dean Aragon. What I took away from this one and what I really loved was how he has brought this purpose and this authentic purpose to this important, gigantic energy company. I can't imagine a better person to do it. And I also love his words and his love for his family and how that motivates everything in his life. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed, so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.